electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer has the morning off. Bulls are going to try again after Tuesday's failed bounce. This time we do have some relief in commodities, oil, wheat, aluminum, uh, European nat gas at the lows of the week, all ahead of tomorrow's first meeting between Ukraine's and Russia's foreign ministers. Our roadmap begins with some renewed hopes for Russia-Ukraine talks and these easing energy shock fears. Futures do point to a sharp rally at the open. Plus growing corporate pressure on President Putin. Iconic brands such as Coke, Pepsi, McDonald's, Starbucks, all suspending various parts of their business in Russia. And crypto surging, the White House launching the first comprehensive plan for regulating digital assets. Top Biden economic advisor Brian Deese joins us shortly. Going to start with the markets after that volatile session yesterday. Of course, that uh, midday uh, attempt at a rally, which quickly faded on some headlines that some argued, Mike, uh, were dated from the night before. That's right. Um, J.P. Morgan, though, did say, is this a peak, a glimpse at what the playbook might look like if you were to, say, for example, get a short-term ceasefire? It was a quick rush toward some of the cyclical and reopening stocks. It was not about the defensive leadership that's taken hold in the last several weeks. That was what was working in that that fleeting rally yesterday. Um, you know, I think that the market in general, you kind of can talk about it as being in this support zone, uh, 4,100 on the S&P at the low end, up to 43. And it, the market's got to move pretty far distances to find anybody with con- conviction intraday. I think that's the lesson. Um, so that's all, you know, t- to the good in terms of an attempt. Oil retreating on what seemed like continued bullish headlines, meaning that the U.S.-Russia oil ban, that's a piece of the puzzle. Um, high burden of proof for any rally being something that's the start of something significant. But I do think, you know, look, even if we continue to roll downhill, even if this is a bear phase that's still unfolding, it never goes down in a straight line. We're down at the low end of this range, down 15 percent uh, in, you know, a couple of months. But can you, bottom, that's a big Mike, bite. can you bottom with this kind of volatility? I don't know what the numbers were yesterday. Yeah. I've, I've seen some say we had as many as seven intraday, one percent reversals. Yeah. Uh, which is more than we had in the entire year of 2017. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out, if that was literally one percent intraday move in all of 2017. 2017 was the least volatile year we've seen basically since the mid-90s. So I don't know. First of all, bottoms start with excessive volatility, and then that's when it eases up. So if you look at things like the VIX futures curve, it's all twisted up in the wrong direction. People are very seized up about near-term volatility and less concerned about it going out uh, a few years. So I think it's all part of the puzzle. A lot of the complaints you hear, uh, and Carl, you've seen this too, people say, well, it just doesn't feel like people are afraid enough yet. You're not seeing uh, put call ratios high enough. It doesn't seem like it's a get me out at any price because energy has been working. Defensive stocks have been a haven. And so it hasn't been one of those across the board liquidation type moments. I don't know. You don't always have everything lined up perfect. Yeah, uh, there was some some asking, do we need to get the VIX above 40? Although I did notice DataTrack said we got to the upper mid 
upper 30. 36, you know, yeah. and all these thresholds for saying. And, and, you know, if you look out a few months, Bespoke had this data last night, too. If you look at the way you have this kind of near-term fear seizing up the short-term of the VIX curve, uh, over three, six months, that's been a good buying opportunity. Shorter term than that, you might be in for more whipsaws or further downside. So there's no way to necessarily. Treasury yields, interestingly, we talked about it yesterday. They didn't lose their uptrend. They never closed below 170. What does that mean? Does it just mean that we have an inflation panic? Does it just mean people are selling treasuries to make to, to earn cash? Or does it mean that the Fed's going to do what it's going to do and the, and the economy can handle it? Those are the ways to interpret it. I can't tell you that a lot of uh, hedge fund players who I tend to talk to and certainly also love to share the numbers of pain when it comes <laughs> with, to their with competitors. When it comes to their competitors. I mean, the numbers even if you if discount them, are staggering uh, in terms of where things are for some of the bigger funds, too, whether it's Tiger or Viking or D1 or you go on and on or Melvin or so many others, you know, 20s, 25, who knows where the real numbers are. But you do wonder whether maybe they've exhausted. The sellers are yeah. getting towards exhaustion. The risk has been effectively, as we like to say, taken off. Sure. You see some of the moves, you know, Mike, in weird weird moves in stocks like Kroger, which had a huge short squeeze. It had good numbers. Yeah. But that, that thing's gone parallel. Like, is that done? And then the selling in many of the names that we know well that just can act as an opportunity to sell because they're so right. liquid. Is that over or getting towards being over? Right. So some of the big Nasdaq names yes. that just kind of keep leaking lower right. without really any news, without much of a catalyst, without even any analyst, you know, downgrades or anything like that. So, yeah, that's that's the question. Right. If we if we kind of reached a point where people are uh, back on their heels enough. That, uh, that you can say that risk can, can start to get added back on. I don't know. I think the, the, the element of the systemic friction that we talked about yesterday, too, right, the commodity uh, moves being so violent. You talk about this China uh, commodity producer that's squeezed out of a nickel position. And that's not just a one-off. Uh, it seems as if producers that sell commodities forward or hedge their production with the commodity futures markets, you still need to maintain trading margin on those positions when the, when the prices go up and you're all of a sudden upside down. So that's something that I think is rippling through. And there's some reports out there about how, uh, you know, it's actually rippling through the banking system a little bit because you'll go to your bank and say, cover me for this, lend me money. on." So the point is, there's a lot of these unintended or unexpected knock-on effects of the commodity moves that are working their way through the system. Yep, it's yep. not necessarily that uh, we're all of a sudden in a systemically vulnerable moment, uh, but it does tell you that it, it, it's a deterrent to get very aggressive on the long side. Yeah, we, we are beginning to see uh, global attempts at workarounds on commodities. Indonesia today are going to up their nickel production for the year. We're reaching out to Venezuela. Yeah. We tried to reach out to the Saudis. Canada saying, we're right here, guys, in Alberta. Uh, we're happy to help if we can. Yeah. Um, but that longer term, it's more about duration now, I think. J.P. Morgan last night said wheat prices, they think, will run 60% higher through Q3. Yeah. Um, which is going to obviously hurt uh, headline CPI, especially in emerging markets. It is. And it's, it's a big question about, yeah, in emerging markets, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic uh, leverage to food prices, obviously. And it, it's usually not, you know, a, a good thing for those economies or markets or consumers there. Um, I think that the little bit of the, of the silver lining is, is in the U.S., commodity input costs are not really that dramatic. I'm not big, uh, big enough part of the factor. It's a service-based economy. We can talk about all the obvious reasons. But yeah, it, uh, how long is it going to last? We don't know. Does it mean that the Fed's going to say that's not the kind of inflation we can impact with higher rates? 
or does it mean that they get more aggressive? I think there's, there's a lot in play. Uh, next week we get the Fed meeting and how they characterize their stance on incoming data. They don't have to say we're going to do the five that are priced into the market, five rate hikes, or we're not. They say we did this one today, assuming they do a quarter point, then we wait and see. That's usually the mode, and it keeps everybody guessing. Yeah. There's also geopolitically, David, maybe a sense that um, we're beginning to see the limits of risk tolerance militarily. This Polish, uh, the Poland uh, issue of getting MiG-29s yeah. uh, through a German uh, U.S. Air Force base uh, got knocked down pretty quickly. Uh, and then you know, we haven't had a meeting of foreign ministers between the two countries. We'll get one tomorrow. Does that carry more weight than some of these talks we've been seeing in Belarus? I know. It's unclear whether it does or not, Carl. Listen, I did sense this morning people thought maybe there was a bit of progress, you know, just the slightest bit in terms of somehow these two, uh, Russia and Ukraine, reaching some sort of ceasefire uh, in a significant way. Um, the Chernobyl power plant no longer getting powers worrying some people. Um, and, and we'll see what today brings. I mean, you know, obviously we just simply don't know at this point uh, what to expect obviously on the ground in this country as Russia continues its barrage, but has yet to actually be able to take uh, a major city. In and Ukraine. it seems like once, you know, we had that defense uh, kind of briefing that got out Sunday or Monday, where it was like, we. U.S. assessment was that Russia had committed 100% of the military assets that it had massed on the board. That seemed to be the start of like, okay, maybe this is kind of the makings of, you know, the standoff and we have to find some kind of compromises within it as opposed to what's next, what's, you know, what, what, what lever is going to be pulled. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I, mean, I think Bill the market yesterday for, during his testimony was pretty negative in terms of what the sure. next two weeks are going to bring for, for Ukraine. Brutal, yeah. absolutely. But I think in terms of how the, you know, the market's an economy of front-run impacts on some level. Uh, so I think it's a matter of, you know, anything that speaks to uh, a glimmer of de-escalation is going to be seized upon pretty right. rapidly. Uh, to that end, uh, we did, guys, talk yesterday on the program about some of the remaining consumer products companies that had stayed into Russia. That ended uh, pretty dramatically yesterday. McDonald's, Starbucks, Pepsi, Coke. Uh, in Pepsi's case, not only, uh, David, looking to... Uh, explore their options to pull out of the business, but potentially looking at a write-off if you believe the journal story. Yeah, uh, you know, they paid $5 billion for that milk business in Russia. It's, it's over 10 years ago, I think, uh, at this point. Uh, but it doesn't produce a great deal of profits. Listen, you know, I, I've spoken to a number of the advisors, two companies uh, uh, that are dealing with this and making these decisions. And obviously, for certain companies, as we made it very clear, it's an easy decision because you don't have a lot of presence on the ground. You don't have a lot of employees. You're done. For McDonald's, that was a big deal. Uh, and you can bet that the board was deeply involved in that, and they spent days trying to figure it out because you're talking about 850-plus restaurants, uh, 62,000 employees. They're going to continue to pay them at least for some period of time. You know, if this goes on for months and months, will that still be the case? We'll see. But this was not an insignificant decision, uh, and it obviously will have reverberations. Some people look historically as well and remember McDonald's and the first one that ever went into Soviet, the Soviet Union as being a turning point as well for relations between the two countries. Um, but Pepsi, you know, that big business, do they need to write it down and exit entirely? Will it become more difficult simply to do business there because of the sanction regime in place in terms of pressures on the supply chain? Uh, and then we have many others, whether it's GE, 
whether it's uh, Starbucks, obviously, we saw yesterday suspending operations. Coca-Cola, I think, important there. Bottling becomes a question there as well for Coke in terms of what the bottling presence was. Don't know enough, but they did say they're suspending their business in Russia as well, Carl. These are all significant steps not taken lightly by any of these companies, particularly those with significant employee populations on the ground. Right. Uh, huge issues as the self-sanctioning, we've come to call it, uh, continues. Meanwhile, you got to watch crypto today. Bitcoin back above 41K as the White House launches this new comprehensive strategy for digital assets. The president signing an executive order that attempts to address the lack of a framework for the development of crypto in this country. Joining us this morning is the top ec uh, Biden economic advisor, the director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese. Brian, it's great to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here. Uh, just first a bit on the mechanics, um, this what appeared to be an early release of, uh, of a page uh, via the Treasury Secretary. Is that something that is now legit? Isn't it, I, sorry, I didn't hear the question. Is now what? Uh, the, the, the early release of this uh, statement from Yellen yesterday, does that point the direction we're going? Uh, you, on crypto is your question. Yes. Yes. So... Uh, the executive order the president will release today is in exactly that direction, which is we need a comprehensive all-of-government framework to address the emerging risks and opportunities uh, that digital assets pose. And uh, the financial innovation underlying and the technological innovation underlying this boom uh, has a lot of potential benefit, but the risks and the costs are increasingly becoming apparent, and we need a 21st century government structure to actually address this. So a lot of what we're doing here with this executive order is putting in place a framework to work across agencies of government, including independent agencies like the SEC and the Fed that have an important role to play, and put urgency and purpose around the core areas that we see as risks. Uh, part of the early take about uh, the EO has been that the U.S. wants to maintain a so-called lead in crypto technology. Is that a fair assessment? And has that even been ex accentuated uh, by what's happened uh, in Eastern Europe the last 14 days? Absolutely. The geopolitical instability and the challenges we're seeing uh, just underscore the importance of the United States being at the front end of leading in uh, technology development and in setting common rules and standards internationally. Uh, that's a role that the United States has traditionally played in international finance. Uh, it's a both an important stability for the global economy, but an important for U.S. economic leadership and U.S. national security uh, leadership. And so we have to continue to do that. There's a number of steps we need to do uh, to make sure that we're at that forefront, both in terms of building our own technological capacity and also accelerating our investigation and study of things like a central bank digital currency, uh, which are important factors in this whole conversation. Brian, obviously this is going to be a, a broad-ranging effort and covering all aspects of, uh, of this new world. But uh, is the energy usage of Bitcoin mining at all an element of it at a time when we're kind of wondering about uh, being more efficient in terms of how we use energy and what we pay for it? Absolutely. As we identify in the executive order, there are a number of policy priorities and risks that we need to uh, mitigate here. First and foremost is consumer protection and investor protection. That's uh, top of the list. Uh, maintaining U.S. global leadership on this issue and technologically, as, as Carl just mentioned. And also making sure that we're doing this consistent with, uh, the, uh, with goals towards sustainability and climate uh, and also doing this with a nod toward unintended consequences. This is one of the unintended consequences of the technological development and we're going to need to 
uh, figure a path forward to responsible use of digital assets that doesn't exacerbate consumer protections, doesn't undermine U.S. leadership, doesn't undermine our energy security as well. There's definitely pathways to do that, but we need a much more deliberate approach as we think about the regulatory apparatus here. Speaking of energy security, what do you think the patience of American consumers is going to be uh, with uh, significantly higher gasoline prices as a result of obviously the turmoil in Ukraine, not to mention the decision yesterday, though it is really a minor player when it comes to our imports or our use of oil at all, but nonetheless the decision to prevent uh, Russian oil from being sold here? Look, nobody likes to pay more at the pump, but I think that the American people and bipartisan majorities in Congress understand that we need to impose punishing costs on Putin and that when we do that, uh, it is going to have costs here in America. As the president said yesterday, this is a Putin-induced uh, price hike, and, and that's, uh, that's the reality of the situation. Now, it's also important to note, as you were mentioning earlier, that both our sanctions regime and leading a unified response, which is leading a number of companies to move as well, these are having devastating impacts on the Russian economy. We're talking about a more than 50% decline in the ruble. Most estimates now are GDP falling by six, seven, eight, ten percent in Russia. So we are delivering that big blow to the Russian economy. We need to sustain it and we need to sustain this partnership with our allies going forward. It will have uh, it will have costs here at home. And uh, we uh, we understand yeah. that and we're doing everything that we can to mitigate it. But I think that the American people understand that the stakes here in terms of democracy, in terms of our national security are high and that's so that we have to take these steps. Uh, you know, you mentioned corporations, obviously, which we've been following closely, uh, many of them deciding to uh, halt or suspend their operations in Russia. Are you dealing with them uh, in the administration? Are you talking to any of them? And or what are you urging here when it comes to those decisions that have yet to be made, perhaps, by companies that still do business in Russia? Well, we're engaging very closely uh, with companies across sectors that are affected, both to understand uh, the impacts, understand the impacts of the sanctions regime, coordinate in some cases, particularly you know, with our financial sector, to make sure that we are effectively implementing the sanctions regime. And as you heard the president yesterday, acknowledge that um, the corporate leadership of companies that are stepping up and are exiting business uh, in Russia, obviously those are decisions that uh, they will make as fiduciaries, but I think the world is increasingly seeing that it's untenable uh, for shareholders and for employees and for the other communities that these companies operate in uh, to continue to engage uh, with the Russian economy. Uh, this is all, you know, this is all the result of a set of decisions that uh, President Putin uh, is making and these costs that um, will, you know, unfortunately the Russian people uh, will bear. Uh, this, this is the, uh, these are the predictable consequences of a set of, you know, um, unnecessary uh, but really atrocious decisions that, that President Putin is continuing to pursue in Ukraine. Hey, Brian, on domestic energy production, everyone's pointing fingers. Uh, we're talking about the number of permits, uh, the, the industry's pushing back, talking about it's about labor shortages and rig quality and the time it takes to make a rig uh, productive. What is the most uh, constructive conversation we can have at this point in terms of in increasing domestic supply that would address the problem in the short term? Well, I appreciate the point. It's we should have a pragmatic conversation, particularly uh, at this moment. And I think when we have talked uh, to engage with the industry in the short term, uh, there are no practical constraints to increasing production. Uh, we've got a market economy, unlike the um, other 
major oil producers globally who are petrostates and who the state controls the means of production. Um, and uh, there has been a lot of talk uh, in the industry about capital discipline and concern about coming back uh, into the market, uh, given what happened uh, in 2020 around the pandemic. Um, but what we're trying to underscore is that in the short term, uh, production comes back based on uh, facilities and rigs that were in, were in process previously or are close to production. Um, and in those cases, there is, uh, there is no constraint. There's no federal constraint uh, to bringing that production back online. And that's why we're seeing that production come back. As you say, it takes some time in some cases, but we're seeing that production come back uh, quite uh, significantly. So I think that's the pragmatic conversation we should have about the very short term. The medium and long term, I think it's the, the, the path and the trajectory is clear. There is no amount of domestic production that we can do when we're dealing with a volatile global commodity where the price is set globally. There's no amount of domestic production we can do to reduce or eliminate our vulnerability as a country to that volatility. The only way to do that is to reduce the energy intensity of the economy overall, which means shifting to cleaner sources of energy. And finally, Brian, I know you got to go. Do you, does the White House believe that uh, the capital return model of a lot of these producers, um, buybacks, dividends, uh, are, are taking a bite out of CapEx that would be productive? Well, what I would say on that is that they, like these companies have plenty of resources to uh, invest. Uh, that's clear given uh, profitability. That's clear uh, given the increase in the profit margins. Uh, and as you say, the decision by some uh, to plow some of that back into, uh, into buybacks in other areas. So the, um, the lack of capital here is, is not an issue, uh, at least uh, from, from our perspective. So that's why in the short term, I think we need to move beyond um, political talking points and acknowledge that the capital is there, uh, the, the production, the productive um, fields are there, and producers are bringing production back online. And that's the reality in the current market. Uh, from crypto uh, to corporate moves uh, to energy production, we covered a lot of ground this morning, Brian. Thank you, uh, Brian Deese at the White House. Take a look at futures this morning as uh, we see another attempt by the bulls to get some green arrows at the open, just off of early session highs, but the Dow does look to open higher by more than 500 points. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Stock market's down five or six days, and even despite the failed rally yesterday, we do have a futures green today. We mentioned the weakness in commodities, and also, secondarily, uh, China, CPI and PPI came in in line. Uh, wholesale inflation, actually the slowest pace in eight months, uh, has some watching uh, inflation metrics around the world. Opening bell in just a few minutes. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. However, I'm going to step out on a limb here. Uh, this I is really, the big, hold on, I, everyone. I, We've been I, waiting I for this. I think we're at the bottom. I really do. It's March 10th. That's a piece of tape that'll be 13 years old tomorrow because today is the 13th anniversary of the S&P market low, uh, March 9th, 2009. Uh, Haynes and uh, Aaron there uh, famously talking about Mark's view, and that was about the Dow yes. versus the 200-day moving average, which he said had gotten as low as 50%, but on that day got close to 67% right. of the average. And he thought, in his words, I think this is for real. Yeah, just an extraordinary level of um, you know slow-moving extreme indicator would, would give him the confidence to say that. And you know, you were a year and a half into a bear market there. I mean, keep in mind, that's how grueling it was. And it kind of wrung a lot of the tactical uh, confidence out of everybody. Uh, since that point, I was just looking, uh, the annualized gain of the S&P is 15% without dividends, a 17% and change with dividends, not too bad. Also, the same rate of return over the last three years. So it's been a pretty good run, and we're, you know. Pretty good. Yeah. It's been an incredible run. Exactly, yeah. 17% including dividends? 17% total return over 13 years. 13 years. years. Yes. Um, and just it doesn't kick, get a lot kick, better. You've kicked up to kick 20 back and buy an index times. fund and just, yeah. I mean, right. I don't know. It, it rivals, you know, what you got after 1982 and, and, and all that. Uh, okay. You know, 13 years in, which is great. Seems kind of long in the tooth, Mike. Well, that's the question, right? I mean, a lot of people are going to argue over that. So it's 13 years since this low. But it was, it was another four years after the, lo- the bottom in 09 that we made a new high. So a lot of people who look at these long cycles say, well, that's when you start the clock on, on how long in the tooth we are right now, which is, uh, you know, nine years. I mean, it's not young anymore, but they say, oh, we can run whatever, 11 to 15 years or something like that. So we'll see if that means that what we're going through now is just one of these cyclical kind of retrenchment stutter steps along the way or, or, or more. It's interesting, too, because compared to ex-U.S., yeah. This millennium has not been good. We're back to levels essentially from 07. Exactly. 
and they're they're just missing our big growth stocks is the main story. And uh, you know that, that accounts for a huge part of the difference composition of the index. Let's get the opening bell here and see how much this sticks at the big board. It is Madison Square Garden Entertainment celebrating the annual Big East Tournament. Starts today at the NASDAQ, Ponce Financial Group, a New York-based bank holding company. And speaking of banks, uh, David, one of the uh, hallmarks of this early session will be the price action in European banks so far this morning. Yeah, I haven't looked at them this morning, Carl, but we know that they have been getting shellacked, to say the least. Just concerns overall about a slowdown in the European economy for obvious reasons. The incredible, incredibly quickly escalating price of, uh, of energy there and the impact that will have, not to mention their balance sheets and some concern, at least among some banks, as to how much credit they have uh, lent to, for example, the oligarchs who are being pounded right now with sanctions, conceivably selling assets at discounts, how much margin is there. So the European banks have not been a good place to be, at least unless you're short. <laughs> yeah. no, <laughs> you're actually doing very well. It, it feels like um, you never quite get escape velocity in the uh, European banks. It was no. a good run for, you know, Deutsche Bank just, you know, today is up 6% or something like that. Still had its value cut by about a third from the high. So it's it's still kind of nursing uh, nursing the wounds and, and it's in the, the bounce zone, not the not the recovery uh, zone just yet. But you know, uh, as we were saying earlier, Carl, if you look at you know the, the reflex leadership, it's the stuff that's been beaten down a lot, travel related, uh, United Airlines, Carnival, American booking holdings leading the way to the upside Caesars. So obviously uh, it's just about kind of uh, you know last in first out in terms of uh, what got beat up the most recently. And, uh, you know, we open up here 4250. It's been this area on the S&P that spent a lot of time in, which can be a good thing if it ends up being kind of a retest. Uh, remember, well before Ukraine, we traded below this level on January 24th, well before Ukraine was a kind of clear and present uh, issue for the market. And um, we've been kind of grappling with it for you know, six weeks now. Yeah, I'm thinking back to what uh, Mark Newton, a uh, well-known technician, said earlier in the week. Overall, having a bullish over 42.50 bearish under yeah, there you go. Uh, is a take to the exact number you point to. Yeah, uh, which means, you know, closing above and, you know, showing that it's going to stick there for a little while. You know, there's it's, it's a little bit of, uh, of suspense around the, the overall trend people are pointing out. If we don't, if we didn't get this kind of bounce and we don't have it hold up, um, you know, the, the longer term trend stuff is going to roll over. 200 day average uh, is going to start pointing lower and uh, the 50 day is going to cross below, you know, the so-called black cross or dark cross or death cross. Uh, Jeff DeGraff over at Renaissance talking about that this morning. That's almost certain to happen. Um, it doesn't really mean that much in terms of, you know, game over. But we did have that happen, like I've been talking about in late 2015, early 2016. If one of these corrections goes on long enough, you're going to lose that trend support. And then it's a matter of, you know, do you get some kind of real thrust of buying interest coming in at discounted values? I would argue value is getting surfaced in this market. Uh, the majority of stocks have been hit way harder than the index. I was looking yesterday. FedEx is at a 20-year low in forward P.E. Sure, earnings forecast probably coming down. Lots of uncertainty about the world and, and, and cargo uh, issues, but it's a 20-year low, and there have been issues before. So I think that FedEx that's is kind, kind of the game you would want to play. FedEx is interesting. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. Um, I mean, its revenue number is not that different from UPS's. Right. They are very similar, uh, maybe a few billion bigger as UPS. Their market caps, let's see, we got one at $55 billion, that's FedEx, and one yep. at $180 billion. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's... Um, um, and, you know, I keep an eye on FedEx. Sure. Uh, for any number of reasons. Obviously, it's an important tell. You follow it for any, you know, important reasons as well in terms of its impact in the market and the transports. But uh, is it ripe for activism? Yeah. Uh, I think it continues to be a question for FedEx. And, you know, that underperformance versus UPS, particularly given... They are similar sizes when it comes to revenues, but yeah. obviously the makeup of their business is quite different from a profit uh, margin side. Absolutely. Different mix. Obviously, the leverage to you know, global air freight as opposed to uh, you know, more domestic for UPS. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a great question in terms of whether it's right for it. Um, Nobody wants to come after Fred. Nobody that's has. The thing. Nobody right. has. He's 50 iconic. Years almost. Right. I mean, uh, doesn't mean just because you haven't, nobody will. Yeah. No, it's Doesn't mean point. I know that anybody is. But we'll see. Of course. And that's, you know, I remember in 06 or at the top in 07, people were saying, you know, could FedEx be taken private? It was crazy. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, a lot of the issues. But that's the kind of conversation that, that, that you know, if you have this kind of quasi-duopoly, uh, somebody's going to think that there are, are, are ways to, to generate further value uh, out of it. And I just think, again, that's a representative of the fact that there have been some big names that have been walked away from. Uh, because nobody, you know, feels like you're going to get paid for taking the risk cyclically or otherwise. Yeah. Here. Well, uh, XPO uh, certainly interesting. Yeah, interesting. Uh, this morning on Squawk Box, uh, spinning off the brokerage business, selling the European business, selling North America intermodal. Going to focus in and tar target trucking, where the runway, uh, so to speak, Mike, looks extremely long. Yeah. And market loves it, up 13 percent. Um, you know, it's it's. Not, not the biggest company, but it's, it shows you that uh, there are parts of this market that, uh, that, that investors are willing to play. Uh, J.B. Hunt, uh, speaking of trucking, did get an upgrade, I think, from, uh, from Goldman this morning. Um, it's already done well. It's not as if this is a bottom fishing exercise, but up another 2.6%. Uh, so pass-through fuel costs and all that story uh, that, you know, diesel's not going to be the thing that stops the trend. David, we could either do uh, yeah. Amazon, uh, House Judiciary, DOJ, yeah. and or, or this um, MGM, EU clearance. Uh, yeah, well, well, let's do them both. Um, I mean, the, you know, I don't know much about this potential probe of, of, of Amazon that a congressional committee is asking for in terms of the DOJ to potentially say that they aren't cooperating as well as they should be. Uh, but I can tell you the EU story, and Reuters reporting this, I, I don't know that we've gotten confirmation. Uh, the EU close to approving the, uh, the MGM deal is interesting because remember last week we were talking about the fact that Amazon could well close that deal here in the U.S. as well. The FTC's 2-2. Too, too. They're still waiting for an approval for their third um, uh, commissioner, and that may not be forthcoming. Unclear what the FTC really is going to do here, but Amazon might just go ahead and try and do it uh, at this point, having satisfied the second request in enough time having gone by. Um, and the EU approval certainly is helpful as well. So we'll see. This plays into this larger question we've been asking for quite some time and talking about a lot and reporting on, which is the antitrust um, impediments that many uh, players in big tech, not to mention players all over, but in big tech in particular, may face. doesn't seem to be stopping them from doing deals, of course. Uh, Microsoft doing a deal to acquire Activision. Uh, for example, not to mention, you know, Google yesterday and Mandian. By the way, on this Microsoft Activision, guys, we're talking about this story, the journal, because a lot of people want to talk to me about it in the last 24, not even 24 hours, 12 hours, whatever it's been. Federal prosecutors, securities regulators investigating large bets. Barry Diller, Alex von Furstenberg, and David Geffen made on Activision Blizzard shares in January, days before the video game maker agreed to be acquired by Microsoft. 
um, unrealized profit of about 60 million on an options trade. It's hard to imagine these guys really were engaging in, in, in non-material, aware of non-material public information and making options trades. By the way, I would point out the options trades in question are not the typical ones you see from insider traders. And that guy right there, Diller, you know, how many companies has he been chairman of? Uh, you really think that he would actually allow himself to be put in that kind of jeopardy? Unclear. By the way, Von Furstenberg runs a hedge fund. Certainly uh, fair to assume he manages money for his, for his um, stepfather, stepfather yeah. thank you, uh, and or Mr. Geffen, of course, uh, Mr. Dillon, Mr. Geffen, quite close as well. So don't even know the nature of it. But Von Furstenberg's a long-term investor, typically. I don't know him well, but I know others who do. And again, Mike, there were three-year, they bought in the money three-year calls. Right. Um, they bought in the money three-year calls. It's a good way to use leverage for a position. And yeah, a lot of us thought that Activision might sell. I failed in actually trying to find out who the potential buyer would be, but it was no secret, given the pressure that Mr. Kodak was under, from the ongoing investigations, for example, in terms of sexual harassment in the workplace at Activision and any number of other reasons that he might consider being a seller. All that said, you never know. Uh, very hard to mount a criminal yeah. complaint, uh, you know, is what I hear from any number of lawyers who know these areas quite well. Uh, evidence will be purely circumstantial, no criminal intent, SEC case unlikely for same reason unless yeah. they find a connection. Sure. I mean, and, and as a reminder, I mean, in order to be found to be guilty of using material non-public information, somebody who had a duty to keep the information private disclosed it or they found out that type of uh, privileged information. And also, it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, J.P. Morgan, as the broker here, as a matter of course, reports up anything that looks like, oh, somebody had a big score on options. It's not so much that the investigators said, these guys did it. It's much more about this is what happens on a compliance basis when you get one of these trades. Uh, yeah, I have a sense this story is going to start and end very quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, well, speaking of Diller, uh, Match Group is the biggest gainer on the NDX as they get upgraded by BMO and Bumble is up much more on a percentage basis on that quarter and they do guide above. Holding uh, 42.50, as Mike pointed out. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Well, uh, we are up, of course, on on hopes. Uh, hopes maybe there may be a path to peace. We don't know. The very nebulous uh, headlines that we've got out there, but that's what we're moving on. Techs, consumer discretionary, which has been under some pressure. Financials under pressure, rallying today. Uh, and energy stocks and, and metals names, which had been rallying to new highs, going in the other direction. So there you see energy uh, down, banks uh, up, S&P metals and mining. The XME has moved 20 percent uh, in last week, in two weeks alone. Enormous moves up. We haven't seen these kinds of moves in these metal stocks that are not volatile generally in a long, long time. And tech also leading the charge here. Just want to show you some of these travel stocks. Remember, these travel stocks were at new lows uh, on Monday morning. Most of them are now positive for the week. American Airlines, for example, is up now up for the week. Southwest, I believe, is up for the week. Uh, Carnival Corp looks like it's up for the week. Marriott's up for the week. Marriott was 165 to 145 in a couple of days, and now you see it's back to close to 160. I mean, imagine these moves in these stocks that we've seen. New lows on all of them uh, on Monday morning. More important is the limits to how far you can push a commodity rally. And I'm talking about the stock part here, not the, uh, the commodities themselves. But take a look at the metals this week. Metal stocks in general rallied 20 to 25 percent in the two weeks prior to last week. This week, the bottom 
uh, the top was all either Friday afternoon at the close or Monday morning at the open. And since then, and this was even before the peace, uh, uh, peace rumors were, were circulating late yesterday, uh, Century Aluminum had been moving down. Alcoa had been moving down. Freeport. And remember, these stocks were all at new highs uh, at the close on Friday last week. So this is the point here. Even before you had discussions or, or rumors about about negotiations, these stocks had already been pushed as far as a lot of people felt they could push them. The other thing I would note is the energy stocks, the same situation here. All of them at new highs on Friday at the close uh, and topping out uh, Monday morning very quickly. And so far this week, you see Hess, Occidental, uh, APA, the old, uh, old Apache, uh, down 6%, and ConocoPhillips, all consistently down uh, so far this week, and most of them down 3 or 4% today. So, obviously, we are, we are essentially beholden to any kind of headlines that we're getting out of the Ukraine. Finally, I just want to mention um, the SEC has got a very, very busy agenda this spring, over 50 proposals, but they've been very busy on cyber proposals recently. They're voting on a proposal today to basically expand the rules that already exist around cybersecurity. But what they're looking for today uh, is uh, to float a proposal on mandatory cybersecurity incident reporting. There have been rules around asking for cybersecurity incident reporting for a long time, but it's very spotty. They want to clean that up, make it very clear about the requirements. They want disclosures after four days uh, after a material cybersecurity incident. They want more disclosures on the company's policies and what they are to manage the cybersecurity risks. And they want an update on previous cybersecurity incidents. Companies, uh, as you know, David, tend to just sort of drop these after they mention them. The SEC wants to try to create rules now that would require the companies to update on previous significant cybersecurity incidents. And David, a lot of this revolves around what's material cybersecurity incident. All that's going to be tried to ironed out. And these are only proposals that will be put out for public comment for the next 60 days. David? Interesting, Bob. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the government's still also trying to get uh, corporations to talk to each other as well uh, about identifying threats and doing so more quickly. Thank you, Bob. Okay. Bob Bassani. Let's get over now to Morgan Brennan. She is at a defense conference in Washington. Morgan. Hey, David. Well, speaking of identifying threats, I mean, it might be a down day for defense stocks in general today, but we're still trading near those multi-year and, in some cases, record highs. And this sector has perhaps never been more in focus. I mean, we have the situation playing out in Ukraine in real time. And then, of course, an increased focus on defense spending as we get not only the fiscal 2022 budget, which is expected this week, but also the 2023 uh, expectation and request as well. Uh, so we are here at the McAleese Annual Defense Programs Conference. This is an invite-only conference, and we are going to be broadcasting exclusively all day. We have an incredible lineup. It's going to kick off in the next hour of Squawk on the Street when we have the U.S. Army Secretary Christine Wormuth and the Under Secretary of Defense Michael McCord, who is quite literally the CFO of the Defense Department, joining us to talk about all of these key topics uh, as we do see this conflict play out in, East, in Eastern Europe. So that's going to be coming up at the top of the 10 a.m. Eastern hour, and I'll see you guys then. Carl.
All right, important day, Morgan. Thank you for that, uh, Morgan Brennan. When we come back, we'll get a closer look at companies like Starbucks and McDonald's who have suspended business in Russia in the wake of that country's invasion of Ukraine. Before we go to break, take a look at the bond report. We did mention the 10-year back above 1.9 today. Overall, 2% gains for the NASDAQ. S&P Dow not far behind. Europe's up 3%, and the German DAX is up 6%. We're back in a moment. Pretty nice bounce here at the open uh, following uh, yesterday's action. You got uh, most of the Dow in the green. You can see Nike, which had been a real uh, victim of concerns about apparel sales, especially in Eastern, even Western Europe, the number one gainer. Uh, Dow's up 614 points. We're back in a moment. McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo all announcing Tuesday they will suspend business in Russia, joining a number of U.S. companies pulling out of the country amid its invasion of Ukraine. Here to discuss is Evercore's analyst, uh, David Palmer. David, great, great to get your take this morning. Good to see you again. And good morning, Carl. A couple of different uh, issues to address. One is the simple Russia exposure, and then maybe we can talk a bit about uh, overall inflation and what that might mean for margins. Yeah. But McDonald's, Russia... Uh, I mean, it was historic going in. Some say it's historic going out. It's a it's a great it, it was a great market for McDonald's. It was company owned, like 86 uh, percent company owned in that market. So uh, something like two and a half to three percent of their profit goes away if that's permanently closed. I think the market is essentially assuming that that's the case. Obviously, the currency wipes out a lot of that profit already. Um, but but it, it's it's unfortunate that McDonald's had such a strong market in in and it happened to be in Russia. From here, of course, I think the concern is that Europe in general will slow, and that's supposed to be a big recovery market for McDonald's. Uh, is that is, does that dynamic spread to other players as well? Well, you know the the you have uh, restaurant brands and yum brands. They each have two to three percent of their profit from Russia as well, uh, and Domino's about one percent. Mondelez on the food side has about has a, a billion dollar business. Something like two percent of their business comes from Russia. So these are not insignificant numbers, but given the m movements in these in these markets, it seems like a lot of this is baked in. The, the, the fast food names have underperformed the Staples names by something like 15 points year to date. So that gives you a flavor of how much the market is punishing them uh, for this mess. You know, I am curious about Yum, not from a profit perspective, but uh, more from the decisions that have been made by some of its competitors, namely McDonald's. They, Yum has a lot more franchise restaurants there. In fact, most of them are. They seem to be citing that as a reason why they can't just suspend. Does that make sense to you, David, or could they be more forceful in their uh, reaction to what's going on? It does. I haven't, we haven't talked to Yum directly about it, but it certainly makes sense. Uh, you know, one of the primary tenets of franchise law is that these are independent businesses that, that you can't control their pricing or, or how they do business. Otherwise, they would... You know, this has been one of the things argued about from the unionization push that goes on. These are these are independent business people. Uh, so so some sort of compensation would need to be made, presumably, to make them whole for something that would be made as an enterprise. Uh, I would imagine that would be much more messy for young brands, which is largely franchise versus McDonald's, which is largely company owned in that market. Right. Now, McDonald's has 62,000 employees. They're going to keep paying them, at least for some period of time. 
but uh, there's also yeah. supply chains here in, in both these countries. I mean, McDonald's had to create an, an enormous one, I would think, as they grew. Uh, what's the impact overall on the supply chain? Well, that's another thing that, that McDonald's is trying to work out. How do they keep their suppliers afloat? Because many of McDonald's suppliers are nearly captive to McDonald's. They have the vast majority of their business going to McDonald's. So if McDonald's is going to keep you know, the, the chance that these businesses can reopen in, in Russia, they need to keep their suppliers in the game, their employees paid. I mean, the only bit of good news, um, and to put quotes around that, is that the ruble is down so much that this is not as much of an expense as it was a year ago, but it's, certainly it's going to cost them a one-time charge. David, is there anything big picture uh, to be done in terms of rethinking the global opportunities for a lot of these companies in the first place? It seems that, I mean, what's the threshold for a public outcry uh, to start to, to say that they should, you know, dis, uh, disengage with certain countries, whether it be China or somewhere else? Hmm. Well, we're, that, that is an interesting uh, question <laughs> where you have to wonder uh, what that threshold would be to not do business in a, in a country. Uh, this is certainly a very unusual thing that's happening with Russia. Uh, it would take a big step to imagine that happening in a market as important and as uh, and it is growing as rapidly as China is in their urbanization. Uh, that would be a huge leap for many companies. Um, I, it's hard to imagine that happening with that market uh, as an example. And that's a much more important market for Starbucks, for Yum! Brands. Uh, for example. Uh, for sure. Although we're in a pattern now where things that once seemed unbelievable uh, are true. Uh, so we'll, we'll continue to watch it with your help, David. Thank you, uh, David Palmer, joining us to talk about uh, the impact on restaurants around the world. Take a look at markets here. Just off of uh, the initial opening highs, Dow's up 515 and we're at 4242. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.